Hey there, Dev Central community. It is me, Jason Ron, stepping in as host again this week for Boo, who is yet again this week on assignment. Last week, he was at Kube Huddle, at, I think in Toronto. And this week, he is at Red Hat Summit out in Beantown, out in Boston. So he's got to go get one of those lobster rolls. And hopefully, they are as excellent as I hear they are. I have, I've had a lobster roll, but not in Boston. So I'm going to have to go get one of those one day. Uh, but welcome to the show. I'm excited. Sorry, we're just a little bit late. We were actually nerding out about technology backstage and got started a little bit late. But I'm, I'm really excited about our guest today. And so he has some tremendous gifts and abilities with doing things on the maker side, but also in career. So this caught my eye this little name badge that he built for him and his team. And I'll let him talk a little bit about that when I bring him on, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a wannabe maker. I, I have my 3d printer and do some things, but there's a tremendous patience and skill in, in, in some of this. So that was pretty awesome. And then one of the other things that he, he built is this Kubernetes and there's a lot of power in this thing and in, in building a, a cluster that basically pull out and, 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 and carry with them, which is, is pretty awesome. And the, the Raspberry Pi clusters is one thing, but this is like whole next level and and, and built out of a, 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 I believe it was a Mac cube. Yeah, an old Mac G4 cube. And so beyond just being a, a maker and stuff, he's an author, cloud native infrastructure book, and some of the stuff that we'll talk about today, scalability and Kubernetes, this EKS scalability best practices doc, which we'll share links for these. But without further ado, let me welcome Justin Garrison to the show. Justin, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to, to have you on. We were talking backstage a little bit, but but some of the projects you work on are fun and they're kind of like in in my lane of interests, not necessarily my abilities, but what motivates you? What brings you into the makerspace? It's always just curiosity. I'm just always like, hey, how does that work? And the first time I made a light blink with software, I was hooked. I was just like, how do, how do I do this more? Like, how do I make this happen more often? And that's like shiny things and, and lights have always been something that just kind of fascinated me. Like impacting the physical world with something I wrote on a computer is still something I'm just like, I don't understand. Like how those, those things connected in my brain is just awesome. And I love that. And you mentioned 3D printing. Like I've been trying to 3D print for a long time. I've had multiple 3D printers and it's always just like such a time sink of like, Hey, I want to 3D print something. And I 3D printed a bunch of stuff for that, for the Mac Cube. And that took a long time to design and get the printer to work and get all that stuff set up. And so all that stuff, it, it just takes time. And right, like all that investment of, hey, what skills do I want to build up? What do I want to learn through this? And and I don't think it's really beyond people. It's just a matter of like, how do I prioritize this and how do I get to that point of like, what is the goal? And is there a deadline? Because like as we were saying before backstage, like, for me, if there's no deadline, I'm, I'm probably not going to finish it. It's just going to be one of the projects in a bin that I'm going to see for years. I'm just like, oh, maybe I'll get to it someday. Yeah, the, those projects that are going to taunt you, like I have a whole drawer full. I've got this little rover that I was building after the, the Mars rover landed. And they were talking about that rocker joint on the front that allows it to like climb over rocks. Like, cool, I'm going to build one of those. And I've got the, the mechanical parts mostly solved, but I haven't done any of the software side and, and integration. So it's just sitting in a drawer. But yeah, I, I love what you said about bringing the the software world into the tangible, right? And I, I mentor, mentored for years a robotics team, and that was to see actual practical things from the software that you're writing come to life is is really cool. And I think it, it, it hooks the kids a lot. And I think things like the first robotics program and Vex Robotics, and th those are 
fantastic programs I wish were around when I was a kid. I, I played sports when I was in, in school. I, I think I probably would have dropped at least one of them to, <laughs> to be involved in, in the robotics world uh, back what, then. One thing I love about robotics is it's, it is a tangible way to teach software because software and computers are so intangible. Like everything is abstract and it all happens in this box that doesn't move or do anything. But I can do a for loop on a robot arm and I understand like, oh, that that did that thing and it's going back and forth because I see it's going through that loop. And those tangible things have always been super interesting to me for, for educational purposes and just to be able to learn them myself. And I used to love watching like Bill Nye the Science Guy who yeah. you know, back in the 90s had a very physical way of teaching science where it was like hey i still remember this day like an episode was like how big is the sun and he had this giant ball and he filled it with earth size like for the ratio for like accurate ratio like this is how big the earth is compared to the sun and i'll never forget how many he put them all inside the sun and i'm like oh that's how big the sun is like it's not just like i can't just see a number i can't just see this abstract thing give me a physical representation of how many earths fit inside the sun and it's the same way with software a lot of times when it's like hey what did it do when I did that curl command? It's like, oh, well, you did a DNS lookup and you did this network. It's like all those things are so abstract and I can't see them that it's really hard to understand what's happening in robotics and physical projects and those sorts of things I love as teaching aids, but also as learning for myself to say like, what does this actually do? Yeah. Yeah. The, the modern Bill Nye for me is Mark Rober. I love watching his, his yeah. videos because he, he brings them to life. And he, he did one with the solar system with not just the scale of the planets, but the scale of the sizing between the distance and yeah, like distances, you've got yeah. the sun and like you're outside the football stadium and about a half a mile down the road to get to Uranus and, and Neptune. And it's, it, it's crazy the, the distance between them and how big or really how small they are in comparison to, to how big the sun really is. Yeah. And there, I, I remember someone, I don't remember her name right now, but she was in the Navy and she was helping with like NASA in the early days teaching about latencies. And she has a video of her holding up different length wires of like, hey, this is CPU to L3 cache. Hey, this is like this, this across the room is like to main memory. And if I go down the block 10 miles, like that's the hard disk. Like that's how much latency it costs to like do that next step basically from a computer. Like when you're yeah. writing software that needs to be performant, like you don't go down the block. Like you need to stay here within this room or something. And if you, if you need to make a network call, like you get on a car, drive a car and go somewhere else, right? Like that's like how far away these things are for latencies. And I love that, like, again, physical aspect, just like planets, where it's just like, oh, what does that actually mean? Like how far is a, a microsecond versus a millisecond? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, time, <laughs> being able to break it down in, in, in things, whether it's visual or, or, or just spatial, that, 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 that makes sense to the world that we actually live in. Anyway, I, I could continue to nerd out on, <laughs> on all that stuff, but let, let, let's talk about Kubernetes. I, I finished my CKA back in March. And so passed, passed, I passed the test. So I'm minimally qualified yep. to do Kubernetes things. But speaking of black boxes, it's like you, you have the, the computer world, the network world, then you like put all that into a Kubernetes cluster and, and it's even more of a black box and abstracted. And so we are, are, are going to talk not just scalability, but what, what first of all, in a, in a Kubernetes world, what, what does scalability even mean? Like, are you, are you scaling computes? Are you scaling storage? What, what, when, when you talk scalability, what are you talking about? And that's, I get that question a lot. Like someone says, how can I scale Kubernetes cluster? I say, well, what are you trying to scale? Like what dimension are you trying to scale in? Cause this isn't about just making it bigger. Cause you can do compute, you can do storage, network performance. All those things are dimensions of 
scalability. And if I said, hey, I want to have a, a faster car. So, okay, well, like, how do you attack how fast that car goes? Like, you could add more horsepower to it. You can make it more aerodynamic. You could do all these things. If you just say, like, I want a better car, it's like, well, do you want it better for a truck? Do you want them to haul more things? Do you want more kids in it? What are you trying to do with that car that you need to do something better? And Kubernetes is the same way where it's like, well, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? And we can't just say, here, here's more CPU power, because that's not maybe the thing that they actually need to do. And so it is this really complicated, multidimensional thing where you really have to ask yourself, like, what's the goal? What am I trying to do with this? And in that case, okay, well, now let's figure out from your goal, work backwards and then say, okay, what gets us there? What, what's the next step to get us one step closer? And so the scalability guide that you linked like that, when we were writing that, it, it goes into all of those things where it's like, well, if you need more compute power, that's one of the things that's kind of understood by a lot of people are like, hey, I know what a faster CPU is because we've been getting faster CPUs for so long. And if you need more network power or more network throughput, it's like, okay, well, you can either do that with lower latencies, you can do it more throughput on jobs. How do you get there? And, and so we break that down in these different ways, depending on what customers are trying to do, faster storage, all those like specs are kind of easy just to say, let's just get a bigger number. But how does that go together and how do we make them all interact together? is where it really starts to get more complicated for people. And like in the scalability guide, we break it down to like control plane, which is if you're using EKS, the stuff Amazon runs. That's the stuff that we have that's the API server, or the scheduler, or the controller manager, all of that stuff, we run it for you. But we're working together on this. This isn't like, a, oh, that's only for you. It's like, hey, but actually if you just start running the curl command a billion times against the API server, like that's not good practice. And like, we need to work together on those things. I, I have taken down multiple Kubernetes clusters in my lifetime with the yes command, the, the Linux yes command, which just spits out a Y as fast as possible. And it actually is, is, is highly performant. There's actually studies about why it's so performant. And I've taken down Kubernetes clusters because I've run the yes command in a pod and it filled up hard disks or it sent too much network traffic because it was so <laughs> performance. And those are things that like, it was bad practice, but it was like me load testing things and seeing where the edge cases were. And in this case, control planes and, and data planes, they have limits and we need to make sure that we work within those limits or we plan for the next stage of how that's gonna scale. Okay, we have a question before we, we move on here. Can you achieve scalability with on-prem Kates, not cloud provider ones? Sure. Again, that's all about the goals and, and the goals. Like if your on-prem is scaling to your needs, I used to work at Disney animation and we had a render farm and we would basically do the math from, Hey, when is the movie coming out? How much compute do we have? When do we need to render stuff? And that we could just like fit those things together and say, okay, this is the date that we need to have a movie finished by. How long does it take us to render things and how many computers do we have? We can scale our, our workloads by either spreading them out over that time or by buying more computers. And that was how we were able to scale those things. And, and you can do that with different workloads, depending on how many users you have, how much storage you need, all that stuff. And so if you're doing that on-prem, yeah, if your goal is ship a movie or run a website or whatever, you don't need infinite capacity you need the amount of capacity that you're going to use for your workload and getting back going from that goal backwards is about doing some math and making sure that you have accurate predictions and you know what the workloads are like and so scalability on-prem is absolutely we, there's plenty of people that do high scale kubernetes on-prem and it's it's amazing and because they are able to do that math and they just say like just work backwards from the goal what do i need 
and and make sure those predictions are accurate. You know, on that front, what I guess it's more of a organizational business problem than a technical problem because, in a, like you said, it's math. You just need to figure that out. But at Disney Animation, I'm sure there's more than one project going on at a time and more than one movie or show or whatever that needs to be rendered. How how does that that intersection of of business goals and and technical capability how how does that play out? In that case, there was a total capacity that was available, and we could carve that up however we wanted. We just said, "Hey, we, the actual like limiting factor at at in the on-prem environment was how much power will the power company give us?" <laughs> like that was like literally like, "Hey, like how much power can we get in the data center?" And we can't go beyond that because we just we can't get more power here. And we could go to a colo or something like that to get more power to get more machines, but. With our main data center, the, the limitation was power. So how do we work backwards from power to see how much capacity we can have? And we can have more efficient cooling, better CPUs, more efficient CPUs, better storage, whatever it is. So we were just like, okay, we have to carve that power up in a certain amount. And then we can divvy that up to departments and projects. And not all the departments are going to use all of their capacity all of the time. They're going to say, hey, actually, I need 10,000 CPUs, but I only need those at peak. I don't need those 100% all the time. And so you can over-provision some of those environments and say, okay, well, this group, this whatever capacity is 10,000 CPUs. The next one is going to be 5,000 CPUs. But if the 5,000 CPU film needs a little more, well, we can just take a little from the 10,000 CPU group if they're not using it, right? Like we're going to allocate a certain amount and say, this is your guarantee. But if someone else needs it while you're not using it, that's fine. And look, like Kubernetes is doing the same thing and Linux is doing the same thing. Where if I schedule my job and I say, I need this much requests, my request is one CPU, but sometimes I go over that, right? Like my limit is actually two CPU or three CPU, but we can, the Linux scheduler can actually look at CPU usage and say, okay, well, you, you need one CPU. This one says it needs one CPU, but I only have one, one core machine. We can just kind of borrow from each other and over, over provision those things. And that works at a small scale at the CPU and also at a large scale with thousands of machines and, and you can do those sorts of things. And the really interesting thing to me with, with Disney specifically was the fact that Disney at a company level has a lot of projects and it has a lot of studios. And so not only could our data center do something, but like Pixar had their data center and Lucasfilm had their data center and industrial light and magic had their data center. And like, and we could actually share between each other and we could say, Oh, actually, your project is is down right now. Can we borrow some capacity? And and you could do that at a, even at a company level. And so it it goes beyond CPU, data center companies. And you can just keep scaling that up to say like, hey, where is this capacity available? Can we borrow that and use it and over provision things at at a certain time? Yeah. Did you guys use like some kind of like technical brokerage tools to do that, or was that more? organizational agreements was was that a business side or or tech side or both there was a technical layer of that where we had a scheduler that would do that scheduling and over over provisioning to say okay well this is it would do the calculations right because we don't want people doing the math to say like oh actually your your jobs took too much no, like that's what computers are really good at and we can yeah. have that as a scheduler that was able to go through and say okay well like when are we allowed to burst outside of our limits or our requests and and when are we not and if another if, if a film is coming out in a month, like they get priority. <laughs> There's like, oh, this yeah. one actually is, is the one that needs the most compute. So it, it could not be preempted by another job to say like, oh, actually, no, you're, you're not allowed to do that. So it was, do that at the computer level. But 
it was there was an understanding that that's how it worked. And so all of these shows as they were working together could say, okay, well, this is the amount of capacity we know we can get, but maybe we can get a little bit more if it's on an off season for another show or if it's nighttime and there's not a lot to render or something like that. And so they, they could build that into their own processes to know how much work they could get done. And so it was fascinating just seeing at a, at a broader studio level how much work could be done based on those assumptions and those availability of resources. Yeah. And that's fascinating. I, I think that you, like probably entire books could be written about just the, there is actually a really cool paper of all of that. Yeah. There is a paper about the specifically Disney animations scheduler called Coda. And so they wrote a white paper, basically how it influenced the, the culture of the studio because of what it could do because it was a new scheduler that that we wrote internally and and how that worked and so it's actually a really neat paper i could i could dig it up and, and find it at some point but it's called coda and it's, it was a cool read just to see like oh how technology impacts the culture of the studio based on these capabilities that we now have because before then it was it was very rigid and it was hey you can do this one thing or this other thing and then adding that flexibility and letting people say like actually the process is a little changeable depending on time and date and resources available yeah yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, let, let's talk about maybe some of the tools around scaling. What What's Carpenter? What does that do for us? In scaling Kubernetes, there's multiple, again, multiple ways that we're scaling. We're scaling pods, which are our workloads. We can scale this horizontally. We can say we just want more of them. And we can scale them vertically and say we need more resources per pod. And we can scale nodes to fit all of those pods. And so we say, hey, I had 10 pods. And now I have a thousand pods. I'm going to need more nodes. And one of the great things about a cloud environment is that's dynamic. Because on-prem, it doesn't matter if you have 10 or a thousand, you're still going to have the same hardware sitting in on-prem. And you say, like, well, actually, I'm always paying for this. Well, why would you just run a thousand? <laughs> There's no reason to scale down if I already have the capacity there. And maybe if you're doing something like reducing power or actually turning off machines that might matter. But in most cases, it's like, oh, I already bought it. It's here for years. Or I'm going to have it for three to five years. So let's just keep it around and run as many workloads as we want. In a cloud environment, that all changes. And you just say, actually, I don't need that anymore. Let's, let's go ahead and reduce our spend by getting rid of those nodes. And Carpenter is a node autoscaler by saying, hey, how many nodes do we need in the cluster? Cluster autoscaler, the Kubernetes cluster autoscaler does that by setting up groups. You say, hey, I have a group of nodes that all look like this, and I need you to add one every time I need more compute capacity. Carpenter's a little different. Carpenter looks at the workload and says, hey, what does this workload need? Or, or this batch of workloads that are being scheduled, what do they actually need? And like, can we fit it to the perfect compute for that workload? And so if that workload says, hey, I need a GPU, it can say, okay, well, I'm going to give you a node that has a GPU attached to it. And maybe that's, maybe you didn't have a group that was defined that way ahead of time, but Carpenter can look at all of the EC2 instance available and say, hey, how many EC2 instances are there? There's hundreds of them, all different sizes and different capabilities and, and how they work. And Carpenter could say, okay, well, let me look at your workload and say, okay, this, this node is probably the best one, but also this is the cheapest one for you. Because you can have multiple good matches and say, oh, actually we have, a couple dozen GPU type instances, but you probably don't want the one that's really, really expensive. Let's get you the cheaper one. And so Carpenter will actually look at that as well and say, okay, well now let's get, let's bring down that cost for you and get you the exact right node at the exact right time for your workload. 
And, and it moves that ownership of the nodes that are available in a cluster from a cluster operator, which is typically where the cluster autoscaler is, where cluster autoscaler, you set up all these groups ahead of time. You say, hey, I have big nodes, I have little nodes, I have GPU nodes, and I have some spot instances, something like that. And like, okay, now you can use these, but this is it. This is, you get these five types and that's how it works. Carpenter says, oh, actually, let's just have the person who wrote the code, who made this workload, tell me what type of workload, what type of instance they need. And then I'll go find it for them. And we don't need the cluster operator doesn't need to set up anything ahead of time. They don't need to do any sort of group management or, or AZ zone balancing or anything like that. Carpenter says, hey, this workload says they want a thousand of them and they don't need any host name spread. They can be all on one host. Cool. The fastest, cheapest way to run a thousand workloads is on one big node. Yeah. We just give you one giant <laughs> node that'll fit all thousand of them. And if that's what you need. There you go. That is, that is the fastest, cheapest way to run it. And if you decide that, hey, actually, if that one node goes down, I lose all thousand copies of my workload. Maybe I want to spread these across different zones. Carpenter could say, okay, well, let's give you as many zones as you requested on as few nodes or cheap as nodes as, as possible. And, and it can do that for you. And so Carpenter is, is node scaling for workloads that are native to workloads. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because obviously that you have different needs. That not everything needs to be highly available. Not everything needs to be running long term. Like maybe you have some batch work that you need to do that that's going to be intensive for a very short amount of time. And so that's one of the things that, we found a lot with people running Kubernetes is it became you had a cluster for a job type. And people kept running more and more clusters for each job type. Because like actually that was just the easiest way for us to split them up. Because it was hard to do single large clusters that had multi-tenants because workloads were different and they had different requirements and, and that node management and scaling and all that stuff got really, really complicated. And so Carpenter, one of the goals is, is to make it easier to run clusters that have multiple tenants and multiple job types because you can define all of those requirements in the workload itself. And it's not up to the cluster operator to like understand, oh, you're changing your availability needs next month. Let me reset up the entire cluster and make that possible for you. It's like, no, you change your spec in your workload and Carpenter and Kubernetes can figure it out. Yeah, it, it seems like Carpenter is a, a master Tetris player, right? You, you have all the all the different holes, like the, the, the Tetris game where it starts, like you already have like 18 lines and there's different holes everywhere. It's like, hey, I, I can solve this, but it's- Carpenter actually has a really neat feature too. Yeah, Carpenter has a really neat feature called consolidation where if I'm looking at my, my Tetris grid and right, these my, my entire cluster and it's, it's like half full of, mm -hmm. of stuff running on it, Tetris Carpenter will, through consolidation, will actually say, hey, actually, you're not using this space up here. Like, this is just empty. Like, why don't we just like shrink that space? We'll, we'll get rid of some nodes that you're not using because we scheduled them at some point when jobs came in and we were scaling up and all that stuff, but now we don't need them anymore. So let's just squeeze that space down and get rid of some of these nodes and make that more efficient so that instead of wasting 20 or 30% of your cluster, we only have like 10% overhead. And, and we can reduce that to make sure that the workloads are still running because we can see what the workloads need based on these requests. We can see what they're using and we can reduce that overhead and make it again, make it cheaper for someone to run a cluster and easier for them to say, hey, I don't know if I need this right now. I'm not, I, there's no person that needs to manually tune those things because that's just 
wasted time for someone to be figuring that stuff out. Computers are great and doing that, doing that math and figuring out, hey, this is what we're using. This is what we need. Actually, we just don't need this much. And so consolidation allows you to reduce some of that overhead too. Yeah, you know, on on node spin up and, and all that. So if you're keeping 10% overhead and then you have like a, a crazy schedule come in that, that needs a lot more compute. I know workloads spin up ridiculously fast. How about nodes? If if you're like in a in a cloud environment, how how fast do nodes spin up? We find that the idealistic approach to that is like they're gonna be really fast. And in our in our testing by developing Carpenter. But we can have nodes ready in under a minute easy. Like it's just like, hey, there's, it's a minute. It's a node is, is up available and pulling images in under a minute. And that's fine. But we find in the real world, that's a lot more messy. There's, there's a lot more that goes into that with custom AMIs and more things that happen in user data where people are actually doing like yum install during, an in, during a spin up. And it's like, oh, actually, you just did a lot of work. To, right. to get that thing there where you're, you're going out and fetching things and then you're installing them to disk and you're waiting for a service to start and all this stuff happens where realistically we find that it's a lot slower than that minute just because of, of what people do to them. But we're, we're trying to help EC2, we're working with EC2 team a lot to see how we can optimize those things, but also at the OS level and in Carpenter itself and say, hey, what do you actually need out of this custom AMI or, or this, this node that you're running? Because every company and workload says they have some different requirements. And so we try to bring those into Carpenter as much as possible and say, okay, if you're at this point where you need five different services, let's go ahead and build a custom AMI, bake all that in. And then it's just a matter of booting it. Let's not do all of that stuff at user data time or at runtime because that all those things slow down. And so we definitely can get workloads that are, are running again, depending on the workload, because if I'm pulling down a, a, 10 meg image nginx like that's fine like it's going to pull down fast so if i'm pulling down a three gig image that's not going to be fast like those things just take time and so th there's a lot of stuff we do in here based on scalability but also in carpenter where we say like actually if you need something that's like a fast like scale up like hey all of a sudden i have a huge batch of workloads that came in and i need to scale up now you should probably over provision some of those things and make sure that you have a little extra headroom if you want to have nodes coming in, I'm actually working on an example right now for how to do like a static overcapacity in Carpenter. So we can have pods and nodes that are running that are always available. So when a workload comes in, I don't have to wait for the node at a certain yeah. level. Because again, it's, it's a, it's a trade-off between cost and, and speed. All right. Everything's a trade-off, isn't it? It's like a lot of things are, are, are doable, but you, you got to make, you got to make choices. Okay, we're we're getting close on time. I can't believe we've already let almost 30 minutes go by. I have a question here, I, or maybe more of a comment. My company has Calico on-prem. When should we move away from IP tables to IPVS, for example? I move away that? when it makes sense for you. Like, like if that's a scalability limit, like IP tables have been working and in, in Kubernetes for a long time. They are kind of a pain to manage. They're kind of <laughs> hard to debug sometimes. But if it's not a, if it's not a, barrier for you, then, then I wouldn't, I don't change things just for the sake of the new technology. Uh, IP tables is, is very proven and it works, but it does have limits. And if you're hitting some of those, how many in the scalability guy, we actually talk about IP tables. Like that was a whole section we wrote about like, how many services can you have? And I think it was 10,000 or a thousand namespaces with 10,000 services or something like it's like, you're going to hit IP table limits when you have that many, right? When, when you're, when you have 
somewhere around like 100,000 IP table rules, like that actually is going to fall over. And then you're going to want to move over to IPv IPVS or something. But IPVS also has trade-offs where if I look at IPVS, you can't do things like gRPC routing. There's some things that like are limits, again, on new technologies and old technologies that you have to look at and you have to understand what you're trying to do. Again, working backwards from that and say like, hey, if I'm never going to scale over 100,000 services, then IP tables is, is probably fine, it, depending on speed. There's, there's a hit. There's all these things that happen, but we have it in there. Like there's, you can look up IP tables in there. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to butcher your name. I'm sorry. Elabed, thank you for the question. And uh, Justin, we are, we are out of time. I want to be respectful to your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. And for those of you on the show, I will have all these links that he shared and some of the nerd projects that I just find fascinating that you should go check out. Justin and uh, justingarrison.com is his, is that your, just your blog site you got out there? Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been so, consolidating a lot there. Just whenever I'm trying to write new things, I try to keep it on my site. I have the site. It's been, I've had a site for over a decade and, and I should use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for everything that you're contributing to the, the industry on the Kubernetes side and, and elsewhere. And I look forward to hearing what, what comes next for you. Yeah. Thanks, Jason, for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Well, that was fascinating. I, I love, I love talking shop and, and it's amazing how fast time can go when, when you're, you're digging into interesting tech. And so thank you again for joining today. I think Boo is back next week in, in the host chair. So you don't have to put up with me much longer, but I will see you out there for certain in the community. And I'll be back here on occasion. Thanks again to Justin. Thank you for everyone who joined today. I know we saw Jose out there. Thanks for joining Jose. Earlier, I saw your, your comment come through. And uh, oh, Boo even made the show. And so thanks, uh, thanks Boo for checking in. And with that, I will say goodbye to all of you out there in the inner tubes. And we'll see you again next week, 8.30 a.m. Pacific right here on Tuesday. Take care.